chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. <coughs> Tonight, uh, as I teach, I may discreetly cough or clear my throat or maybe very diplomatically take some mints out of my pocket and sort of uh, put one into my mouth as we're teaching because, you know, whatever I need to do tonight just to help the voice a little bit get through this. So, Father, I pray for your blessing upon our study here this evening. I'm so grateful, Lord, for these Wednesday nights. I'm so grateful that you are here in our midst and that you're a God who not only reigns in heaven in all majesty, but you're a God who listens, a God who cares. And so now, Lord, we want you to be the God who speaks and who speaks to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this section in the Gospel of Luke, the general trajectory, the general direction of Jesus' life and ministry is now going towards Jerusalem. And as he goes towards Jerusalem, he has a lot of different experiences, encounters with people who need healing, encounters with people who are in trouble, and now an encounter with his disciples who are going to ask him a question. Notice here verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. It's a very compelling scene here, just from this first verse. The disciples saw something that they must have seen dozens and dozens of times before. I I don't know what the setting was. You know, in my mind, I think it's early morning. It doesn't have to be that, but that's just sort of how I picture it in my mind. Disciples wake up. Where's Jesus? Well, he's over there. He's praying. And they kind of go over there and they listen to him pray. And they just listen to Jesus pray for a while. And don't you think it would have been remarkable to listen to Jesus pray? To hear him speak. I mean, if you've ever heard a very godly man or a very godly woman pray, there's something powerful about that. There's something that you know that they have an intimacy, a connection, a relationship with God. And it might not have anything like human eloquence. It might not like be a beautiful prayer that you would read in a book. It may have no poetry to it. But there's an eloquence to it in the spirit that you just see and sense. And just sort of floors you if you've ever been in the presence of it. Well, you, you take all that that is and you multiply it by about a hundred times. And that's what you have with the prayer of Jesus. So imagine the disciples just listening to Jesus for a while. And notice, verse 1 tells us that it says, When he ceased, they asked him. They let him stop. In other words, it's like, we don't want to interrupt this. This is so wonderful. We're just going to sit here and listen. But after he had finished, when he had ceased, then it says, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. In other words, there was something about watching and listening to Jesus pray that was magnetic. It made you want to pray. It made you want to learn how to relate to God the same way that he did. Now, just like the disciples did, you and I, we need Jesus to teach us how to pray. To pray, I should say. And that's the funny thing about prayer, isn't it? Prayer is so simple that the simplest child can pray. And haven't you heard some wonderful and remarkable prayers from the mouths of children? I mean, I'll just let the memory banks run through your mind when you've been amazed at the prayer of a child. But then again, the smallest child can pray, but then again, the highest saint. If 
feels that they haven't plumbed the depths of the power and the goodness of God in prayer. So we have this very strange dynamic of what it means to pray. I'm going to quote you something from a man named Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray wrote a great book. He wrote several great books. But the one that I want to draw your attention to tonight is called With Christ in the School of Prayer. I don't know if anybody in this room has ever read that. But if you hadn't, I'd put this on the book of recommended reading for you. Andrew Murray, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And he uses the Lord's Prayer as sort of being like a school of prayer for us. Jesus teaching us how to pray. Anyway, I want you to read this quote. He says this. It is on prayer that the promises wait for their fulfillment, the kingdom for its coming, the glory of God for its full revelation. Jesus never taught his disciples how to preach, only how to pray. He did not speak much of what was needed to preach well, but much of praying well. To know how to speak to God is more than knowing how to speak to man. Not power with men, but power with God is the first thing. And that's a humbling thing for me, a preacher, to realize. But it's absolutely true. That a first primary, first importance is not what I say to you, but what I say to God and my relationship with Him and your relationship with Him. And so the disciples came and they said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now I want you to notice that very specific request. Lord, teach us to pray. They did not say, most literally, Lord, teach us how to pray. They didn't say that. What did they say? Teach us to pray. In other words, they weren't asking, first and foremost, for some technique or method, or just, Lord, show us how to do the elaborate tricks or the secret methods of prayer to unlock the secrets that's going to you know, open up the piggy bank of heaven or something like that. No, instead, it was more like this. Lord, we just want to pray like you do. Teach us to pray. We thought we knew how to pray. We don't know how to pray when we look at you praying. We feel like we've got to start it all over again and just say, Jesus, we need to pray, and we need to pray more and more. Now, look, whenever I begin on a subject like this, I, I begin with this great realization that whenever you teach on prayer, it's the easiest thing in the world to make Christians feel guilty. Because there's, there's probably not many people in this room who feel satisfied about their prayer life. You're conscious of some neglect. You're conscious of some need to pray more. I just want you to know, the whole purpose of this is not to heap guilt upon you, but to inspire you to greater and greater prayer. To say, yes, God can build in something you, that, that however you walked into this room as a man or a woman of prayer, you can walk out with an attitude that says, yes, I'm going to be a greater man or a greater woman of prayer. You, you can grow in this. God can bless you along the way. I like what the Apostle Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He said this, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and all supplication for all the saints. I mean, All prayer at all times. That was kind of Paul's idea. And so apparently, John the Baptist had also taught his disciples how to pray. The disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. So what did he say? You know the verses. Look at it there at verse 2. 
So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, often we call this what? The Lord's Prayer. And that's not a bad name because it's the Lord Jesus who gave it to us. But, you know, isn't this more accurately called the Disciples' Prayer? You want the Lord's Prayer? Look at Jesus as he pours out his heart to God in John chapter 17. But if you want the Disciples' Prayer... Here it is, right here before us. And what I find fascinating about this is that on a previous occasion, earlier in his ministry, Jesus taught his disciples and a much larger multitude about prayer, and he gave him a very similar prayer to this. You'll find it in Matthew chapter uh, 6, if you wanted to see it. It's verses 9 through 12. And the fact that he repeated that prayer once in Matthew on a different occasion and now here in Luke on a separate occasion, it shows how important prayer is to Jesus. And I also find something interesting in it, that it's not repeated exactly the same way when Jesus did it earlier in Matthew and now here later in Luke. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is not that we should take this prayer as an obsessive, memorize the rote words. Because as it appears first in Matthew and then later in Luke, it's slightly different. No, there's no contradiction between the two. Because Jesus was teaching a heart of prayer, an attitude of prayer, a mentality of prayer. He wasn't hung up on saying, you must pray these certain words as if you're praying as in a, you know, Tibetan chant or something like that. No, but he says, you must have this kind of attitude, this kind of heart. This is your model For prayer. You know, this prayer is very amazing for its simplicity and its brevity. How short it is. I mean, how long did it take me to read it? What, about 30 seconds? Think about that. Has any of us ever prayed such an eloquent prayer in 30 seconds? 30 seconds? Man, I'm just warming up after 30 seconds. You know, it's like you, you, you somehow think. Now, you should also know that this was the thinking in Jesus' day among the rabbis of his day. They used to say things like, whoever prays long, his prayer is heard. Have you ever been with that guy in church? You know, and, and they felt that these long, grandiose, super eloquent, you know, flowery, you know, over-the-top prayers, that that's what really God got. I think Jesus is showing something that's pretty powerful here. Your prayer does not have to be long to be godly and to get to the point. This prayer is so brief but so powerfully, it it speaks to our heart that prayer can sometimes just be bam, right to the point. That there's a spiritual eloquence that goes far beyond just this idea of eloquence of piling words upon words. One of my favorite stories to this regard has to do with uh, Dwight Moody. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist of 150 years ago. He was doing a big crusade, a big meeting in England. I don't know what city it was in England. 
And uh, there he was, and he, he had enlisted the help of many different ministers in the community to help with the meeting. And so there was one minister in the community who was invited to come up and give a prayer at the pulpit. And this guy got up, and he started doing one of those 20-minute prayers that was just killing the meeting. So, you know, it, it's been said, after the first three minutes, we pray with you. After the second uh, three minutes, we're praying for you. And after the third three minutes, we're praying against you. But anyway, this guy was clearly in his third three minutes. I mean, he was just going on and on. And Moody's going, this guy's killing the meeting. It's, everything's going to be gone. So what Moody did was he came up on the platform. He put his arm around the guy as he's still praying. And he says, as our brother finishes his prayer, let's sing him number 492. Well, that's a great way to do it. But look, it doesn't have to be long. Jesus got right to the point when we try to impress God with our many words, we sort of deny that God is a loving yet holy father. We, we should ho- follow the, the counsel of Ecclesiastes 5.2 that says this, God is in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. So, with your few words, what are you going to say? Well, look at it right here in verse 2. It begins, our father in heaven. This model prayer shows us to come before God as a father in heaven. Now, there's really two very great ideas there. First of all, a very privileged relationship in coming to God as father. Did you know that there is evidence in the Jewish literature of Jesus' day that no one before Jesus in the Jewish world commonly referred to God in heaven as Father. This, this would have been astounding to Jesus' hearers. That God allows us to come and just address Him as Father? It would have been remarkable to them. So He says, Our Father, but what? Our Father in heaven. He is our Father, but He's our Father in heaven. And when we say in heaven, we remember his holiness and his glory. He is our father. Don't forget that. He has a warm fatherly love. And you know, every once in a while, I'll come against somebody and I'll just I'll talk to them and talk to them about how God loves them as a loving father. And they'll tell me, but you know, my dad was all messed up. I don't know what it is to have that kind of loving fatherly love. Can I tell you something? I believe this with my heart. That even if you don't know what it is by the experience of your life to have a loving father. And if you don't, I, I, my heart goes out to you. I grieve you. It's it just that that's not right. It shouldn't have been that way for you. But if it wasn't your life's experience to know what a loving father is like. You know what a loving father is like by intuition. You know. Even if your father wasn't what he should have been, you know what he should have been. And what he should have been, that's the loving, caring disposition of God the Father towards you. He opens up a warm father's heart to you. So he does that very radically. Our father, but remember, he's in heaven. When you look across the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, you see that to say that God is in heaven is to say that he's a God of majesty and dominion. It's to say that he's a God of power and might. 
It's to say that he's a God who sees everything. He has the vantage point in everything. God, if you're in heaven, I'm at complete peace with you knowing what's going on in my life. Because from heaven, you can see everything and you rule over everything. To say, our Father in heaven sets it in a perfect context. By the way, I've got to point this out as well. Even just those first few words set the context properly in community. Did you notice something about this prayer? That it's not my father. It's not my bread or whatever. It's our, our. This is a prayer to be prayed in community. This is a prayer to be prayed socially with other people. In other words, this is a heart, a disposition that we have in common with other people. It's not just my father, it's our father. And you know what that makes us? Brother and sister. I like that very much. So it's our father in heaven. Continue on now, verse 2. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed means to set apart. It means that there's nobody like God. It's that God is completely unique. He's not just a super person or a better person. Hallowed is your name or be your name. Name means God's whole character. His whole person is set apart. That's the idea of the name. It's not just simply his name. But but in that Hebraic way of thinking, the name stood for the entire person. And so it says, hallowed be your name. And then notice this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think this is remarkable because this model prayer shows us that our priority must be for your name, your kingdom, your will. Truth be told, people, we don't live our lives like that an awful lot, do we? Much more than we would like to think that the, the daily life we live hour by hour, day by day, it's for my name, my kingdom, my will. But God says, no, the answers aren't there. As gently as, as, as possible, but as firm as necessary, God looks at us and he says, you've got to die to that part of you. And you're only really going to know life if you'll live for my name, my kingdom, and my will. This is the orientation of heart that should happen when we pray. You see, everybody wants to guard their own name, their own reputation. You care about that, don't you? Don't you care if your name is being defamed? You should. But instead, this teaches us to have a passion and a care and concern for God's name, for God's kingdom, for God's will. It shows us this, that real prayer isn't about getting what we want from God. What real prayer is about is aligning ourselves with God's name, His kingdom, His will, and seeking through prayer to bring those into action. Now look, I think there's a very logical um, uh, uh, question that somebody gets. Well, well, listen, isn't God fully capable of advancing His own name, His own kingdom, His own... Why does He need me one bit to do those things? I'll tell you why. Because for whatever reason, and actually I I know some of the reasons. I'm not going to say I know all of them. But for whatever reason... God loves to involve us. Dust that we are. 
He loves to involve us in the outworking of his eternal plan. If that doesn't blow your mind, you're just not paying attention. He he wants to do that. And so he says, yes, I've got this fantastic kingdom to advance. I've got a name to glorify. I've got a will to, to put forth in this world. And I want you to be a vital part in bringing it forth. You can participate in that. And so that's how we pray. Your will be done. You know, a man can pray, your will be done in a lot of different ways. How about this? Maybe you've prayed this prayer. I think I have. All right, your will be done. Right? Have you prayed that one? Then how should you pray that prayer? How about this? The way that Jesus prayed it in the garden. Lord, you know what I want. You know the orientation, but, but nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven. That is our pattern for what it means to say our will is subsumed to God's will. Now, in the midst of all of that, verse 3 now breaks into something kind of different. The initial part is all about focusing on God's will and God's kingdom and God's name. And it's beautiful, but now look at verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. You know what's interesting about this is most of the commentators and the preachers in the early centuries of the church could not believe that Jesus really meant actual bread here. They thought it's too common. It's too, you know, just that's what everybody deals with. Instead, the idea was something like this. No, 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 no. He he has to mean spiritual bread. He has to mean uh, the Lord's Supper. It it can't mean just actual bread. But you know what I think bread means here? Bread. What you and I need to live every day. The food we need to put into our mouths. Do you understand God cares about that? And this is what's such an absolute astounding thing about this prayer. This God who dwells in heaven, who has such a passion for His kingdom, His name, His will that he says, you you have my passion for that. He comes down and says, I care about putting food in your mouth every day. Isn't that beautiful? So he says to pray this way, to ask for him, give us day by day our daily bread. Now, by the way, notice this, though. It's a prayer for daily bread. He didn't say to pray for a warehouse of bread. But just for what you need for that day. And I don't know, I, man, I, I don't want to get off too far in this direction because, look, if you were to compare, if, if you were to take the poorest person in this room, and we're not going to determine who that is, don't worry. If you were to take the poorest person in this room and put them next to an everyday person in Jesus' day, they would be fabulously wealthy in the life that they live, the conveniences they enjoy, the good things around them. And so we are blessed. We are blessed. But this was a society that lived so much of its life literally wondering if you would have food for the next day. So to pray this prayer is to say, Lord, I depend upon you every day for what I need. 
Now, for some of you, the bread is no big deal. You go home and you got lots of bread in the cupboard. You got lots of food at home. I mean, you, you could actually, if you got a little bit creative, you could eat from what the food is right there in your home for a long time without ever going to the market. You know that it's that way at your home right now. No, I'll, I'll put the test for you right here, right now. How about this one? And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. First of all, just as needful as bread is to a hungry man, that's how needful the forgiveness of sins is to you and I. We need to be forgiven our sins. And we need it all the time. That's why we need to come back to the cross again and again. That's why we need to come back to the cross and look at Jesus and the great work that he did for us and just receive it again and again. You're out there in the world and you get your feet dirty and you dirty it up yourself, don't you? Well, here, you should be able to come in here into this place and say, Jesus, won't you please wash my feet? Jesus, won't you please cleanse my soul? And if you'll open up your heart and let him, he will. So you need your sins forgiven, but then also, look, I can't ignore this one. As we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Do I got to say a lot about that? Now note this, I find it interesting that Jesus represented sins with the idea of indebtedness. If you're a sinner, you're in debt to God. And only Jesus can pay that debt for you. But part of this idea is, we are forgiven, therefore we should be a forgiving people. If Jesus Christ has forgiven you your sins, what right do you have to retain the sins of anybody who sinned against you? It's just assumed here that we will be a forgiving people. Verse 4. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Temptation literally means a test. It's not always a solicitation to evil. So saying, Lord, don't lead me into a test that I can't handle. God has promised that he'll never test us in a way that's greater than what we can handle. I love this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Do you know this verse? This is one of the earliest verses I memorized as a Christian. You ready for it? No temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's his promise. Now, wait a minute. Do you realize something? If God has promised that to you, does that make the prayer here unnecessary? No. Promises are appropriated by prayer. Lord, you made this promise. Now, would you please prove yourself good on it? Would you please perform that which you have promised? And that's God's promise to you, that he'll not lead you into temptation, but he'll deliver you from the evil one as you rely upon him. So that's how we pray. Lord, do not lead me into temptation. What does it mean to not be led into temptation? Well, I think it'll work out in several ways. It means you're never going to boast in your own strength. 
It means you're never going to long for trials. It means you're never going to lead other people into temptation. It'll never mean that, it'll mean that you won't consciously lead yourself into a tempting place. That's what God wants us to pray with. This idea of, yes, Lord, I rely on you for the spiritual vitality of my life. All right, let's continue on now. Verse 5, because in the next two sections, he also speaks about prayer. He says very simply, And he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me, for the door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give to him as many as he needs. This little story, this illustration that Jesus gives, it relies on a knowledge of how homes were commonly in Jesus' day in that part of the world. You know, the the common Israelite farmer back then would bring many of his farm animals into his home at night to sleep. You, You could say this, that they slept in the barn. The barn was their sleeping place. And oftentimes, they would sleep on a raised platform. You know, something up above the animals there. That's where everybody would sleep on this raised platform. So can you imagine the whole family tucked into bed at night? They're all ready. Everybody's just comfortable. You know how it is. You know, you got your footy pajamas on, you know, and everything there. And you're just all warm and comfortable. There's all the animals down below. You got your ox or whatever and a couple of your donkeys and a few of the sheep who, you know, need extra special care. There they are in the midst. Bam, bam, bam on the door. Hey, please, I need some bread. A visitor's come over. Are you crazy? What are you trying to do? Interrupt my sleep. Do you think I'm going to get down and disrupt my whole family and step in Lord knows what to go to the door and get you some bread? Bam, bam, bam. Please, I need bread. You're going to humiliate me before my friend if I don't have something to set before him. And finally, why will he do it? Why will he open up the door? Because you're such a wonderful person? No. Because he's such a wonderful person? No. He'll open up the door because of your persistence in banging upon him. God says, If that's how humans are, how much more is God ready to answer to our persistence? And here's the thing. Be persistent in prayer. Verse 8 says, yet because of his persistence, he will rise up and give him as many as he needs. Friends, I don't know if I can explain it, but I'll just say this. God often waits for our persistent participation in prayer. He says, I'll do this. When you persistently participate in prayer with it. I don't know why. And I'm not trying to say that whatever you pray persistently for, God will automatically do. You and I know that there are aspects to the will of God and the outworking of God that we don't know about. That sometimes you pray once. Sometimes almost a casual prayer. Oh Lord, would you do this? And wow, what happens? And there's other times you're just crying out in your knees for Lord knows how long. Lord, would you please do this? And then it doesn't seem to happen. You say, Lord, why? Why the one and not the other? I don't know. And I challenge anybody in this room who says that they do know. But I do know this, that there's something that God draws out of us in persistence of prayer. 
that we should take serious and we should participate with him on. Or let's finish up with this last section here, starting at verse 9. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You get the point here? Jesus draws close to each and every one of us, and He says, ask, seek, knock. By the way, not to get too technical, but in the original uh, Greek grammar of this, the verb forms imply Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Pray, pray, pray. Seek me. Come before me. Draw down before my face. All of this speaks of an earnestness and an intensity. Listen, sometimes our prayers are just cold, aren't they? They're lukewarm. Look, I've, I've been hot in prayer and I've been cold in prayer. I know the difference. And Jesus is saying, you should have this intensity in seeking after me where you ask, you seek, you knock. Why? Because you'll be rewarded. Just like a father isn't going to give a son a stone if he asks for a piece of bread or a scorpion if he asks for an egg. What a wicked father that would be. God says, no, I will reward you. But look, we've got to admit this. The reward of prayer is not always getting what you ask for. It isn't always that. Sometimes the reward of prayer is being conformed into the image of his son, which is what you really want anyway, isn't it? I think so. I trust so. All right, let's close with this before Troy comes up and does the questions and answers. Let's close with this. Wouldn't it be wrong if we just didn't pray this prayer that Jesus told us to pray together. So just so we all get it straight, we're, we're going to put it up on the screens. And we've got to stand for this, so let's stand together. Because this is a community prayer, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who's indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, we want that prayer to work its way deeply through our whole soul. We said those words. And Lord, we mean it. We do. It wasn't a false prayer. We just pray that by a work of your spirit, it would be more and more real in our life. Transform us by the power of Jesus, we pray. Amen.